now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Mahesi Kaplan. Mahesi mm-hmm. is a former Buddhist monk who is also a slow death experiencer. Mahesi says that we can have NDE-like experiences, but without actually dying, and today we're going to learn about it. Mahesi, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I wanted to come on the podcast because I found it very amazing listening to your guests, um, but I felt there were a lot of parallels with the experiences that I'd had through my contemplative life uh, as a Buddhist monk and beyond my life as a Buddhist monk that uh, were uh, very similar to some of the things that your guests have been describing. And I also felt that uh, a lot of your guests um, sometimes implied that you had to have had a near-death experience in order to know these things or access these things. And it seemed to create a kind of divide between those who've had a near-death experience and those who've not had a near-death experience. And and I just wanted to let people know that there, the veil that creates that separation between, you know, the human body and the, uh, the immortal realm, you might say, can be penetrated from this side. And there's traditions that support it, there's methodologies that support it, and I have experiences that I can share that also uh, um, are in keeping, you know, with that. So that's that's why I want to be on. Well, we're glad you're here. And you are our first Buddhist monk, whether former or current, that's been on the program. So that's all great. If you don't mind, can we first start with your life as a Buddhist monk? Sure. Well, I became a Buddhist monk uh, on my 22nd birthday. I arrived in the monasteries and um, the abbot of the monasteries, the monk that I had met that attracted me to the monasteries was called Ajahn Anando, and he was an ex-US Marine. Uh, And uh, he'd had incredible experience where he'd been shot in the head. So he had this bullet wound in his head, but he was one of the first human beings, Westerners that I'd met that I felt had some quality about him that I hadn't encountered before. And, and I felt very attracted to finding out what it was that he was doing, what was in his lifestyle that was giving rise to this quality of luminosity, this quality of light really that was emanating for him from him. So uh, yeah, I was very attracted to finding out more about that. So um, after I met him, I went down to a festival where there was a, more than one Ajahn Ananda. There was a, an, an Ajahn Amor and an Ajahn Sumedha and an Ajahn Viridama. So there are all these other monks and they all had this similar quality. So I found that very fascinating. Um, and I asked to ordain. Was the monastery in England? Monastery was in England, yes. In Northumberland on top of a, on top of a windswept hill. So when you became a Buddhist monk, did you have to renounce your current life and all your material things and you have to shave your head and wear robes or what do you actually do well the tradition i was in is called the Theravada forest tradition so it's very closely uh related to early form of buddhism so yeah it's a it's an ancient lineage in fact it's probably the oldest intact community in the world because it's been going for over two and a half thousand years so to ordain, you have to renounce everything. Yeah, you give everything up. You can't handle money 
We only ate one meal a day. We couldn't store food overnight. We're completely celibate in every way. There is no getting out of that. And um, got up at four in the morning. Uh, we, in those days, we used to do once a week, we would do all night meditations, all night sitting. So yeah, it was, it was a renunciate order, quite a, an, an, an order based around something called Vinaya, which is a highly structured kind of discipline. So the idea of that discipline is to create containment, like a container. And then the idea of that container then is to create intensification of life force so that you have to then become responsible to the life force that is intensifying in the field of your experience. And, and so then you're given teachings to then begin to learn how to, what to do with all that life force that gets contained. If you're in your 20s and you're celibate and you can't go out and you can't drink and you can only have one meal a day and you can't hang, hang out with women, it, things begin to build up. Yeah. <laughs> the pressure say, builds. Talk about some energy the pressure storage. pressure builds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's what began to happen. I've heard, and maybe it's different sects of Buddhism, but did you even have to go out and beg for food? That is part of the tradition. It's not beg for food, but it's to make yourself available to be offered food. So we, part of the principle is to give up control so you're, you know, because it's a big thing, food's a big thing, and we like to control what we eat. Whereas if you renounce control, you're in, in a sense entrusting yourself into the hands of others. And it's a symbol of vulnerability, you know, and also of entrust, trusting life in a sense to go into town with a bowl and just rely on what people choose to give you. Now, that's not quite how things were organized because people used to bring food to the monasteries and then the novices would prepare it. But having said that, there were instances where monks would choose to do that. They would leave the monastery or they would go into town and, and just do that practice, which would be standing with a bowl and just to eat that day, whatever they were given, which who knows what that would be. I think it's more culturally common for Buddhists in Asia to be sent out with a bowl and the community yeah. is culturally aware of that and is more likely to come to them and give them food for their bowl. I don't know how that would play out in England with Buddhist monks roaming out in well, the city. There's a, I'll tell you, there's a video on YouTube called The Buddha Comes to Sussex. So mm. anyone who wants to explore what happened can explore it there. Mm. So how many years did you stay in the order? I was ordained for 15 years. Wow, 15 years. Yeah. Did you move did you move up high within the Buddhist hierarchy? I certainly moved up the hierarchy. Yeah, by the time I left I was what was called an ajahn, which is kind of a teacher. So um you, you know I was a novice for 2 years and then the first 5 years of your monastic um life as a monk, so that's 7 years in total, you generally just live within the boundaries of the monastery and whenever you go out you go out with a senior monk but around my fifth year um i went on a retreat and i came out of retreat and i gave this storming storming norman talk to the community and the abbot at the time thought oh he's great that's great we can start sending him out to teach hmm. so i i started going out to do a lot of cheap teaching perhaps prematurely um but uh, from that point on i i, I was teaching a lot hmm. going out to groups and things 
What do you think are some of the misconceptions that non-Buddhists have about Buddhists? Well, one of the big ones is that the Buddha teaches life is suffering. This is not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that the misunderstood life is suffering. That's basically what he taught, in essence. So he certainly didn't teach that life is suffering. He taught the misunderstood life is suffering, but when life is understood, that, that suffering ceases. And your NDE people, the reports that they give, it's very clear there's this kind of demarcation between the experience they have on the other side where suffering seems to be, in most cases, greatly relieved and greatly lessened to the point or to the extent that they don't want to come back. So it serves as a kind of contrast for the experience of their human life or the human sort of situation. And they find that there is more suffering really to be experienced there. And Really what the Buddha's teaching is about is about waking up to the condition of the human life and to start seeing the transparency of it, to start seeing that the human body is a veil through which you can see into this um, realm of the unborn, this realm of illumination that so many of your guests, you know, touch into. Is the Buddhist way saying that, you know, we're suffering because we're not going in the right direction of our life? Or what are they saying? What causes the suffering here? Or we're suffering because we're misinterpreting what's happening. Yeah. In what way? Uh, and, you know, to, to put it into very, very simple terms, and the Buddha was a genius at this because you know, his students went to him and said, you know, what should we say you teach when people ask us what it, you teach? Because, you know, they kept trying to explain what it was he teaches. And he says, if anyone asks what I teach, and I'll use the Pali words here just to set it up or tee it up. He says, I teach Dukkha, Dukkha Niroda, which is often translated as suffering and the cessation of suffering. But, you know, it could be love and, sorry, it could be unlove and love, because basically suffering, in my estimation, in my reading, this is my interpretation of, of Dukkha, is unlove. And so, because so many of your guests talk about, you know, love is such a difficult word to use because it's, it's, it's so debased, but, but they talk about this experience of unconditional love and dukkha is unlove. That's basically what it is. It's, it's an exile. It's, it's being exiled from your heart and then being alienated from your heart because we've lost that literacy of the heart because we live in such a sort of head centric culture we're so wedded to our thinking uh, that you know all it's all de-energized and uh, it's not you know we're not settled there and of course our thoughts never settle do they they're in constant constant movement there's this sense no matter how rich you are no matter who you are it's it's almost certain that there's some sense of my life could be more than this in this moment. This moment is never quite sufficient. Mm-hmm. There's always some sense of there's something more that could be added. Right. And, and this right. is essentially what the Buddha was teaching, that sense of searching for that something more that could be added in this moment is, is dukkha. And then the cessation of that dukkha is finding that complete and utter well-being that your NDE guests often report where, there's no thought of wanting to return or no wish to be anywhere other than they find themselves to be. And that is essentially, you know, what I'm interested in, 
in in doing from this human side you know i'm not the the, the beauty i think of w- what the buddha was teaching was you know was not a message from pleiades and it's not a message from angels it's an interpretation well no it's a human being who has understood the human condition and then tries to teach about the human condition from the perspective of being a human being and how to start then unpicking it and how to you say become awake because essentially that's all that buddha means it just means to wake up to the actual nature of this condition and of course the fundamental um core of the problem is the human body itself because you know that's what's so confusing what is the human body who's who is in there if i ask you to locate yourself inside your human body you can't do it you, you know if you're honest with yourself you can't say with certainty well i'm located here There's some sort of impression you're located somewhere behind your eyes perhaps but when you start looking with curiosity you begin to notice well this sense of self mm-hmm. that i'm so assumed to be so real is actually very ephemeral i <laughs> can't really find it when i look for it so yeah. it's an inquiry then into what is really going on and then what happens when you actually push that inquiry as far as you can and then amazing things start to happen you know we talk about dualism where the spirit is separate from the body and just using a body to experience this realm. Or we talk about, and I think they call it panpsychism, which is actually the body is just a manifestation of consciousness in this realm versus a materialist yeah. that the consciousness is created by the body. Where, yeah. What do Buddhists say? I'm more on the panpsychic on? side. And okay. What, 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 what you begin to discover is, um, yeah, the the mind, the body is inside of the mind, not that the mind is inside of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a reversal of the general assumption that starts to become more apparent. The more, you know, don't forget when I told you about that, the sort of principle of the monastery, which is like a container, you know, when that cooking starts to happen under under pressure, and then you start to see that intensification, there's, you know, through sitting meditation and and good instruction, the body begins to reveal its nature. You begin to see the nature of the body. Now, the Buddha had a fundamental teaching. Perhaps this is a good time to go into it because it's, it's core to everything. Whether you don't, it's, it transcends religion. It's just a contemplative structure based on what's self-evident, that you have a body. You know, and that your body is breathing now. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is this, which is the Sutta on, on the four foundations of mindfulness. So, and this is really where people can, you know, this is the the basic structure that people need to bear in mind if they are going to start to penetrate this veil from this side. So, there's a few things he says: set up straight. First of all, when you're doing this, he also says, place your attention at the center of the chest, which is something to do with the heart chakra. So, you know, um, and then he says, you know, breathing in, you know, you're breathing in, breathing out, you know, you're breathing out. Now, this is the area where there's a huge amount of misunderstanding in my estimation. 
because I don't believe the Buddha actually taught breath meditation as the vast majority of meditation teach, meditation teachers teach, in the sense of, you know, oxygen coming in through your nose, oxygen coming out through your nose. The word anapanasati is related to the idea of anima or animus, you know, it's to do with the subtle energy, the subtle energy of aliveness, you know, which is something that we all experience. You know, we say, you know, take a cup of coffee to brighten our mind, you know, we can all feel that subtle energy. So as you breathe in and breathe out, you can begin to experience there's a subtle energy which comes in and out through the pores of your skin. It's almost like a subtle wind. And it's a process of sensitizing ourselves to that subtle wind of this flow of what sometimes being called the inner breath in and out through the pores of our skin. So anapan, so ana, the ana part of the word anapanasati is referencing that. The pana part of the word is referencing pranas. It's like electricity, the vitality, the vital force. It's, uh, it's, um, um, what the Navajo called, uh, I think they called it the holy wind. And I think in Kabbalah, they call it Ruach. And um, in Christianity, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's terminology for this in every tradition. Um, the the um, Blavatsky people called it cosmic electricity. So electricity, if you want to sort of take the sort of religi- religion out of it, is it's that electricity of aliveness. And you can feel it with pointing out instruction, which we're not going to go into here because we don't have time to do the pointing out instruction. But everybody can feel this within 10, 10 minutes. You know, you can begin to sense this very subtle movement of air through the pores of your skin. And when your eyes are closed, then, of course, the boundaries start to shift i mean this is something that's obvious but because we don't understand it we don't interpret it we don't reflect on it very much we miss it but whenever we close our eyes the boundaries of the body dissolve Mm -hmm. you cannot discover a boundary to your body when your eyes are closed right as an experience just as an experience you can't find it with the eyes opening, you still have that sense of vision. So you've got to turn that sensation off. That's sure. in, input into your consciousness. And you've got to t- turn off that input to be able to access other things. I, eyes open is just, it's just seeing. It's a sphere of seeing, but that's all it is. It's, it is what it is. It's partial, but it's not, it's not descriptive of the entirety of our experience. So mm-hmm. if you close your eyes, you find another dimension or aspect of our experience Mm -hmm. and um you know once you start going into that then many things start to unpack and unfold i think it would be amazing if somebody and maybe it's already been done but if somebody could take religions like buddhism or like parts of hinduism and they re-translate the words or even read create new words so everything makes sense for us in the english world like for example you have these words anapana something right 
Yeah. People just, if they're reading about stuff and when they hit words that they don't understand like that, it just, it it loses meaning. So if they took that word and created a brand new word, like a Western version of Buddhism, and that made sense, like energy flow, breathing energy, it sounds like to me, it's breathing energy. We got to sort of Holy Spirit and then uh, electricity. And then uh, sati means being present to or being being aware of. So in a sense, it's being present to the electricity of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what it is. While sitting up straight with one's attention centered at the center of the chest. You know, but the actual um, sort of concrete experience of that is beginning to sense that the space in front of your face, the space that's around your hands, the space even that surrounds your clothes is actually there's a subtle kind of tidal movement going on it constantly uh, and it's not that it's difficult to perceive it's just that it needs to be pointed out in the right conditions and everyone can begin to notice it and that is your first stepping stone on this path that leads deeper and deeper so you know so the first foundation of mindfulness, we've got the body. So you've got hair of the head, you've got nails, you've got teeth, you've got skin. This is all concrete stuff. You know, it's not ideology. It's not a debate. You've got saliva in your mouth. Uh, you can, if you look closely, you can even begin to feel the blood flowing through your body. You know, you can begin to sense your liver, your kidneys, um, your thigh bones, you know, your rib cage, all of this. So you begin to look at all of that, but not, thinking of it in terms of form, but thinking of it in terms of your direct experience of it. And when you go to the direct experience of it, it's not a rib cage, it's not a thigh bone, it's it's not a hand, it's not a foot, but it's a it's a field of sensation. Mm-hmm. And that field of sensation is being intensified by the sensitivity to the subtle breath. And once you align yourself in that way, then your thinking processes begin to slow down because what you're beginning to do is actually wake up to what is. So when you people hear words enlightenment or awakening, they think perhaps, you know, some sort of dissociated kind of luminous ball somewhere up in the sky or something. But here we're talking about actually waking up to the actual physical body that we were already in possession of. So what Buddhism is basically saying is this very body right here right now is what we don't understand. The very thing that we assume to be so obvious, so clearly about me and who I am is the very thing we've not taken the time to investigate properly or understand. And so, you know, that is essentially, you know, that first step. So the first step is to look at those things in conjunction with this breathing sort of sensitivity that I'm describing so you're looking at the physicality of the body and then, you know, naturally that shifts into a realm of sensations. You just start to feel that kind of tingling, that sensation. And then, you know, if you begin to explore the sensation and I say to you, you know, can you see in your experience, not an end to the actual sensation or is that sensation a sensation that is without end? And so, you know, I'm pointing out not, again, I'm not pointing out ideas, I'm pointing out 
actualities that are self-evident to everybody once they're pointed out or once the conditions are set up that ensure that they're going to actually notice that. So that doesn't sometimes require some sort of containment, some discipline, a bit of a setting, some ritual, you know, but it can all, it's all easily done. So, you know, then you get into this field of sensation, you know, and there's, there's movement there, you know, the sensation is kind of tingling and stuff. And then, you know, but then you can begin to notice, well, it's an expanse. It's an expanse. It's without limits, essentially. So, you know, you're starting with this finite thing with the body and through beginning to inquire into the body, it starts to become a lens that it begins, it becomes an instrument of seeing, essentially, an organ of seeing through your cells, this expanse of space. And within that space, there's a whole sorts of, you know, you have flashes of imagination, you have sensations, all sorts of things are going on. But then if you really look deeply into that space, you can begin to see there's a kind of almost like a velvet place beyond the movement where there's no movement, you know, of absolute stillness. And, uh, you know, and it's very, very restful and people can get into a very, very restful place there. And then you can see, well, there's a distinction between the movement and the, and the, the non-movement, which is interesting. Because it's so fulfilling, so satisfying, even if there's some sort of unpleasantness going on, you, it, it's kind of irrelevant because you found that restfulness that we, we, we long for so much. It sounds kind of like the black void. Yeah, but it's not actually black. Jeff, that's the thing. It's not black. And the same applies just simply when you close your eyes. You think Mm. it's black, but it's Mm. actually also full of light. It's absolutely, it's it's like an absolute light. Yeah, great point. Yeah. Uh, You just don't see it. It's like if the world suddenly evaporated and all things evaporated and we were floating in space, it would just be dark. Right. Everything would just go dark. But if you could suddenly then just stick your hand out onto the space, suddenly there'd be light. Right. Okay. So that's that's how it is. We just it's it's all to do with noticing and interpreting and sensit- and resensitizing yourselves to actually what is what's there. And, um, and you know, and there's there's a method to it. You know, it it doesn't just happen haphazardly. You know, this is why you have lineages and traditions and 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 sort of there's ways of enabling this to to accelerate the process so you don't just accidentally stumble upon it we've only done one and two there's three and four there's three there's because if you start with the body you go to the sensations okay the third foundation of mindfulness which is the one where there's confusion or debate is called the pali is called chitanusati which is it which is awareness of the jitta and this is the deathless realm. This is the illumined, this is the illumination of the mind because the mind will begin to illuminate. You will begin to discover factors of enlightenment such as bliss and you know radiances and, and various things will be there and you use them to begin to heal yourself. And you, know, you begin to notice how the mind expands into this and contracts, but it's a quality of, consciousness but there's an intelligence in that consciousness as well because this is the other thing that your NDE people often speak about which is this sort of telepathic communication or 
telepathic knowing or this process of downloading. Well, this is where from this side, the whole process of downloading begins to occur. The Dhamma, which is the word that's used for the Buddha's teaching, it's not really about what he says. It's about hitting that groove, getting into that groove where everything starts speaking to you. You start to begin to uh, experience the true nature of all things. And because you're so open and you're so porous, what starts to happen is there's this what I call interpenetration. Or another word that is sometimes comes to mind for me is intersubjectivity. So me, the subject, penetrates into the subject of the thing outside of me. And the subject of the thing outside of me penetrates into me. And it has a kind of sexual kind of orgasmic quality to it, you know. And so you kind of get, if you get locked into that groove, then everything starts speaking to you of this one taste of liberation, this one taste of well-being, this one taste of essential okayness. So the things that apparently are outside of you and are essentially threatening, such as the universe, (laughs) start to feel like love, fundamentally. They enter your heart. Remember I mentioned it's the, the heart center, okay? So there's a teaching in Christianity that I like, um, to do with Mary Magdalene, the relationship of Mary Magdalene and Jesus, where the the heart center is is talked of as like the uh, bridal chamber, you know, where you know the form and the emptiness meet, and it's it's in the conjunction of those two things that you get this kind of incredible ignition of love and well being and divinity that so many of your guests are are describing, and it's all you know, it's all can be started just with the body sitting in your chair, the body lying in your bed. And then the final stage is called the uh, fourth foundational mindfulness is called Dhammanusati, which is the contemplation. Let's just say the contemplation of the way things are. So this is where you start to get this kind of telepathic downloading, understanding what's going on, you know, because most of us are, you know, truly bewildered about really what is our position in the universe? What is really going on? What is our destiny? All of these questions start to, you know, you start to understand, well, you know, what birth is, what death is, what what well-being is, what bliss is, you know, what eternity is, you know, what divinity is. All of these things start to become realizable and knowable by you. And there's many, many angles that are actually in the scriptures that, you know, are ways of looking at things in many faceted ways. That makes sense. So those are those four foundations of mindfulness. It all starts with that which is accessible to us all, which is this physical body, which for the majority of us is a source of pain, a source of anxiety. And, you know, when you look out, this is something that used to happen with me. I used to look out from my eyes at the night sky and I used to feel this kind of nausea. It was just so overwhelming, the vastness of it, the scale of it. You know how can I how how can I make sense of this? It's a it's, it's very threatening. If you're identified with this flesh body as me and mine and be, as being definitive of who and what you are, then you recognize you're in trouble. You're not going to survive this this situation. You're you're doomed basically. <laughs> we used to have a we used to have a this is upstairs away from the lay people a, a, a poster famous quote from a monk that said being born is like stepping onto a boat and sailing out to sea to sink 
And that is how it appears when we identify with the human body as being definitive or all there is to our existence. And it is terrifying. There's no two ways about it. So I remember about in my fourth or fifth year, it was during an all-night sitting, and it was like three in the morning or something, and I decided to go outside to wake up myself up. I stepped outside and I looked up at the night sky, you know, it was a completely clear night. And I suddenly experienced the universe as being inside of me instead of outside of me. And suddenly all of that threat and nausea that I felt just disappeared. And it just, it was just a thing of beauty. And that's all it was. It wasn't a threat. There was no wondering about what, you know, where do I stand in relationship to this? Because, because I'd probably been doing so much meditation at that time, I was, I was rooted in a sort of formless state of awareness that was inclusive of the universe. So the universe actually is inside the mind. It's not the universe of form is inside the mind. It's not, or inside consciousness. It's not that it's outside. So when you begin to realize that, then a lot of that sort of existential angst gets dissipated and and you can live with a less, a, a, a more kind of courageous heart, you could say. Is reincarnation part of Buddhism? And if so, do you come to understand what's the point of reincarnating over and over again? Well, first of all, there's the whole sort of stages of enlightenment are quite well laid out, and we can cover that if you want. Because there is a stage in the awakening process where the necessity or the compulsion to associate oneself with the human condition ceases. So you can basically, you can outgrow the human condition completely you know you can become so too big for you can become excuse me too expanded too big for the, for the human condition to be of any relevance anymore so that that's called arahant that that is a that is a state of full enlightenment in buddhism are they saying that we are reincarnating yes it's not an area i really want to get into too deeply here because it gets a little bit sort of it gets a little bit niche but basically it's not the self that reincarnates as we understand it, but it's more the habits, you know, the, the habits, you know, of, of the karmas, the actions that get repeated again and again. So if we, if we generally live unskillfully and then it's quite likely that that same p- pattern, like, just like the image they use, it's like a, if you take a candle and you take that flame to light another candle, can you say that that is is the same flame or not? It, you, if you see what I'm saying, it it's not really you, but it is a trans. It is a transmission at the same time. So it's it's somewhere in that space. I'm leaving you with that image more than trying to unpick it philosophically because that's going to take us down a bit of a rabbit hole. That we've probably got better things to do with. All right, to do with our time. Why did you disrobe? It's always been a bit of a mystery. It wasn't that I lost faith in the tradition or in what I'd learned or that I fell out of love with the monastery or the people in the monastery particularly. I mean, monastic life does come with politics, I guess. So there was part of me that just wanted to get away from the politics. Also, I went in very young. I was only 22 when I ordained. So perhaps there was some part of me that felt like I was living at home with my parents, you know, and I... You know, there are only four or five monasteries in the West, so they're all occupied by kind of big abbots. So you kind of begin to run out of space to sort of uh, uh, stretch yourself. And 
perhaps I wanted to face the challenge of being in the world, which actually I find a lot more terrifying than being being a monk. So in a sense, I was facing my my greatest fears, and it has been hard hmm. because I was very comfortable as a monk. You know, this is my the territory I'm very, you know, very comfortable in. But there's very not very many people that can follow me down this this road. Although I think it's totally relevant to where we're at these days and, and you know it concerns me that i'm not hearing more of it because you know, it's, it's so self-evident you know and beyond ideology and it's just so transformational well i think it's great that if you could take the lessons that you learned as a monk and re-enter the world and apply them you know that's that's been my plan but you know it, it, it's a, it's like maturing wine it does take time it does take time and you know this is a never-ending process you know there is such a thing as enlightenment but i don't think that is the end stage and you know i have confidence in what i'm saying because you know all of this started for me when i was 19 years old and i'm now kind of in my late 50s so you know i have seen myself go through stages i've seen how my sensitivities have changed and my orientations changed, my understandings changed. And, you know, I don't think I'm near the end of the process, but I've understood that this is an incredible thing. You know, many, many years ago, I used to say there is no death. You know, that was obvious to me then. And that was from this side without an NDE experience, because, you know, I was having these experiences of, you know, mind extending way beyond the body, not so much the moving mind, the thinking mind, because I'd been trained not to identify with that. I could sense through uh, the trained mind, through the stillness of the mind, and, uh, you know, through the intensification of my vitality, the, the fact that there was just, you know, a mystery beyond human understanding that we were participating in. But it wasn't a mystery that gave rise to a feeling of me being threatened. It was a mystery that started to infill this void in my heart. So I could feel that my heart was beginning to feel uh, confidence in this, faith in this, uh, um, not from the point of view of belief, but from the point of view that through direct experiencing, I was being infilled by moment to moment with bliss, basically. And, uh, you know, I'm blissed out of my box most of the time. It's not necessarily self-evident. And I don't say that as a claim because I've got all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, human issues. I've got all sorts of karmas that I, I don't understand. I think I've had a lot of very violent deaths that make it quite hard for me to completely let go because, you know, I've got to sort of deal with the, the intense physical pain of some of these deaths that you know is still kind of recorded in my in my cells and my body um but the bliss is a is an awakening factor in it and it's what i use as you know for healing and, it, and it's a guiding light in in you know how i continue to progress down this road all right can you give us some practical examples and ways of being able to have an NDE-like experience? I don't think it's appropriate to go into, look, there, there's, there's, it's like there's the describing of the lemon, you know, and then there's the biting into the lemon and tasting the lemon, which is, which is a very different reality. Now, I don't think we've got the time to go into a guided meditation, which is essentially what we required. And it would need at least half an hour or 45 minutes 
Um, but there are, are, as I said, quite a number of maps. And I think perhaps the map, one of the useful maps I've already given you, which is the four foundations of mindfulness, and that, you know, that is a concrete map. You know, you can begin to, you know, ask yourself, you know, what is my actual relationship to my body? Most of us are terrified of it. I have been, you know, it represents, you know, blood, guts, feces, urine, you know, vulnerability. It can be stabbed. It can, you know, it's going to die. It's going to rot on the ground. You know, it's, it's, it's very threatening in truth. So a lot of us are kind of dissociated from the body because we see it as a threat. Whereas what I was describing in the four foundations of mindfulness begins to progress you towards an understanding of the body as a window into the unborn, you know, so it's kind of like the finite becomes the infinite, which is another way of looking at Dukkha Dukkha Niroda or suffering and the end of suffering. So this finite body is a, is your key to the infinite. So like we'll run through, I'll run through the spiritual powers quickly then, because, you know, this really gives, will give you some sense of a key to, uh, you know, that, you may be able to make some sort of sense of with other things that, you know, are working for you. The first of the spiritual powers is faith. It's not faith in the sense of belief, although belief works. Uh, you can become, you can come to this through belief, through, um, um, th- through faith and through wisdom. So of all Three of those paths work, but of those three paths, wisdom is by far the quickest. So if you're in a hurry, you want to to get on board with the wisdom route. And, you know, there's so many highly educated and intelligent people in the world now, the wisdom route is accessible to millions, potentially, in my, my estimation. So faith, then, is not just about believing what the Buddha said to be true, although that's an aspect of faith. It's true meaning of faith is to give your heart away or to entrust your heart over, to give it away. And that happens when there's pain in your life. If you're experiencing depression, if you're experiencing any sort of limitation, anxiety, you know, financial anxiety, whatever it is, while there may be legitimate things that you need to do in order to address the situation. Um, nevertheless, with faith, you can find an experience of okayness, begin to find an experience of okayness in the midst of that. So that means, for example, if you're experiencing intense anxiety, with this approach, you become curious because I'm telling you there's freedom to be found in that anxiety. So now you know that you, there's an opportunity to become curious not just the victim of the anxiety, feel like there's nothing you can do about it, not feel overwhelmed by it, but actually go towards that sensation of anxiety and experience it just as that, as a sensation. And if you begin to go towards the sensation, then um, um, a lot of the kind of complicated sort of thinking that you might be having around that sensation begins to lesson begins to quieten down and you stay with the sensation and you're thinking well i don't really want to do that because it's an unpleasant sensation 
and it is no, no one's going to put their hand up and say i volunteer for this it's an unpleasant sensation but if you stay with it and this is one of the things the buddha taught as key absolute key patient endurance you know so there's a ruggedness to this you know you got to be a warrior you got to be you got to like say okay i'm going to have a look at this i'm going to square up to this and have a look at this sensation go to the sensation and if you go to the sensation what you will find is that the anxiety ceases that doesn't necessarily mean that the sensation goes away but the sense of the anxiety impinging itself on me ceases because the the impression of me is more often than not just a resistance to the anxiety it's like i don't like this i want to get it get rid of it i want it to be otherwise you know why is my life like this you know this is all me story but if you just go to the sensation the me story falls to pieces because there's just no space for it and then when the me story falls to pieces you have an experience of peace even in the midst of that and then this next spiritual uh, power arises which is it's called virya like in virile it's 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 um energy you suddenly realize my god this anxiety that's been plaguing me my whole life when i went towards it i suddenly felt i could manage it that it was okay for the anxiety to be there i wasn't just trying to convince myself it was okay it actually was okay there was a sense of okayness in the midst of that anxiety and that suddenly emboldens you you become emboldened you suddenly say, i've suddenly understood something very fundamental about my life that i'm generally i'm i'm just sort of collapsing and being a victim and and seeking you know i don't want to go into what addictions all about but seeking seeking you know various forms of relief that you know are often self destructive to get away from in this instance we're using the idea of anxiety so you suddenly become emboldened you suddenly feel strength i've got i've got a superpower here i've got a superpower that enables me to tackle this sensation and it says oh, what else can i tackle you know what else is in there to tackle you know, it could be jealousy it could be you know anger whatever you know it applies to it applies to everything so that with that emboldening there's this arousal of of energy and you know you're beginning to extract some of the telepathic intel- telepathically almost the intelligence that exists within the sensation see what i'm saying there's intelligence in there so through entering into intimate relationship with it the intelligence starts to become operative and so you know there's a sense of god everything's beginning to make more sense now um and my you know um so then um i won't go into the third spiritual faculty yet because it's sort of in the middle like a seesaw of the others so you've got energy then on the, on the other side of the next thing that begins to evolve out of that is wisdom what is wisdom so most people think wisdom is a man with a beard up in the sky you know making very clever pronouncements about things that's not really what wisdom is wisdom is 
being able to see something that is an obstruction that is finite that seems solid that is re- that is resistance that is pain and then through understanding it in the way i'm trying to describe it suddenly turns into freedom from pain becomes unobstructed it becomes not finite by infinite and wisdom is the capacity to turn the finite into the infinite or to turn pain into freedom from pain or to turn unlove into love and wisdom understands like one of your guests said and i, I remember this clearly uh, very powerfully saying you know her realization was everything is a manifestation of love everything without exception and that is that is actually the case so wisdom is the recognition that everything is a manifestation of love and if you're not experiencing that you have to go towards it tackle it and extract that intelligence from it until you realize it and then then you know and that is wisdom that is essentially what wisdom is it's not it's not bookish it's not you know cleverness it's something completely different it's very grounded in action and what's actual and what is direct, what's immediate, what's here and what's now. And then the consequence of all of that is uh, the final, the, 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 the fifth of the spiritual faculties will go into the, the middle one last is serenity. The word they use is samadhi. So what's, the word, what the word samadhi actually means in the Pali language is it's, a, it's the thread that they use to make a garland of, of flowers. So it's the thread that joins everything together. Okay, so samadhi is, again, sometimes translated as concentration, and people think, well, I've got to really concentrate to meditate. That's not it at all. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's a natural state of unity where the sense of me and the sense of you is unified as one and we're we're conjoined together threaded together through this sort of uh intersubjectivity interpenetration through that's just born out through presence you know we so the the physicality or the what your people call this kind of sense of resistance starts to become transparent you know and boundless so there is no boundary between the me and the you anymore, or the me and the rock, or the me and the flower, or the me and the tree. Yeah. And because of that, your mind becomes still. In a sense, you become locked into pure, I'm going to use your people's language, uh, pure telepathic cognizance of, of everything. And what it's conveying is wisdom and compassion. So your heart's fulfilled by it. And your need to know is every need to know is met as well simultaneously because you're tuned into this groove of pure intelligence and pure knowing, uh, pure relationship. So the at the heart of 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 those spiritual powers is um what is popularly known as mindfulness. And I don't want to go into particularly, but I'm not a great fan of the sort of uh, secular mindfulness movement. It's all well and good for what it is, but it's not representative of what the Buddha taught, in my opinion. So at, at, at the core of it is this idea of mindfulness, which which is, you know, this sort of what they call, you know, being here now. You know, people say, you hear mindfulness teachers say, oh, it's just about being in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Ask any mindfulness teacher what the present moment is, and not a single one of them will be able to 
describe it. They might try to describe it to you in terms of, you know, well, you just watch the breath arise and pass away. That's the present moment. No one can really describe to you what the present moment is because the present moment is the great sort of undoing of uh, any sense of being positioned or in any locale anywhere. You know, it's just pure, um, it's pure unborn potential. That's essentially what it is from which anything can arise. And it's really not discoverable in terms of knowing it, but it's discoverable in terms of being it. Did you give us all five of those? Yeah. So I'll just very quickly run through them. Um, It's faith, essentially faith. It then following from faith and there's a reason why they're in this order faith is the key that ignites the process energy which is caught in the idea of courage like you know lifting yourself up from from sort of being broken to i'm going to i'm going to take this on i'm going to confront it like the native american indians when they went into battle apparently they used to uh, peg themselves with their headdresses to to the earth so they couldn't run backwards. You see what I'm saying? And that's essentially what meditation represents because you're confined to your meditation mat or a monastery represents because you're confined to the monastery. It's that sense of, I'm going to contain this bloody devil that's wrecking my life. I'm going to confront it. I'm going to challenge it and see if there's more going on within it than I previously understood. And the message, my message, not so much my message, but the message of the Buddhist tradition is that if you do that, it will become a source of freedom for you as opposed to a source of oppression. So you do actually have a choice. You know, you you can respond to the challenge and take it on. Not saying it's easy. Generally, you want to be in a kind of supportive situation or being, you know, held in some way by others to help you in, in that. But I mean, that nevertheless the opportunity exists and that is our situation is uh then then uh comes so you've got the energy courage then you've got uh the the mindfulness um essentially which is that that point of just being completely open to um uh, a mind that's open and unmoving and present you know it's it's like a sea anemone it's sensing 360 degrees constantly and uh, in Christian, in Western tradition, sometimes uh, they call, there's equivalence to this in the Western tradition called King Warrior, Magician Lover, also the pyramid and four, it's complicated, we don't have time for it, but they call it dancing the four quarters. So these are four potentials that exist, these are potentials that exist in all of us and we have to be able to enter and exit and cultivate all four of them to become sort of divine beings fundamentally uh so um we've got that's the mindfulness then we've got the wisdom which is the serenity the stillness that sense of being rooted not moving nowhere to go because instead of the now being insufficient the now becomes sufficient so you don't have ants in your pants anymore and then serenity and uh, and sorry mindfulness wisdom and then serenity i think i didn't go into the, the wisdom part is the part that's constantly penetrating when you feel ants in your pants, which you, you will. It's not like it all goes in one fell swoop. It's like, you see how 
applies in one circumstance and you've got to apply it in another circumstance. So, you know, when the ants in your pants arises, instead of being driven away by the ants in your pants, you say, okay, here we go again, something to be understood here. You go towards it and you get in the groove and extract what is there present in that experience. And um, so, yeah, these are the, these are the Indrias. There's many, many other maps like this, but, you know, we can't go into them all. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or communicate with you about what we've spoke today. Are you open to that? And if so, how should they do that? Yeah, I'm absolutely open to it. I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested actually in working either I can teach online to groups, to part, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm quite unconventional. I can, you know, if you want to, if you want to do a video call in, in a pub or something, I'm even open to that, but also open to working one-to-one with people and, and guiding them through, you know, how to bite the lemon as opposed to me just describing, you know, what the lemon looks like and giving you some intuition, you know, of what it might be, but actually getting you to get some traction on the road. So I have a website, which is sati, S-A-T-I, dot co, not dot com, dot co, C-O. So S-A-T-I dot co, C-O. Yeah. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? You have the option, you have the choice of cultivating a right, straightforward relationship to the way things are. And if you do, you will discover that all is love. Undivided attention is the key. That's thank, all there is. Thank you for that message. And Mahesi, thank you so much for being my guest. Okay. I really appreciate you and I wish you the yeah. best. Thank you very much. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.